Hey everybody, welcome to episode 69 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. The hiatus is over and we are officially beginning season four. A lot of things have happened in the five months since we've been doing this show, one of which is Erica and I have moved. So instead of recording this intro from her closet, I am sitting in our super cool cricket infested backyard. So if there is a low hum of crickets in the background, that is where they are coming from. I also made sure not to squander those months, so we have already recorded half of this season. And if you've never gone to our website, gogetoutside.com, you should definitely go check it out. We have completely redesigned it, and for the first time, it is easy to navigate through all of the past episodes. We have multiple ways for you to pick and choose how you want to find the episodes. You can sort them by season, by topic. It is easy to navigate from one episode to the other, so now I would say that the website is the number one best place to consume the show. We have improved and updated the individual show posts and we are incorporating more media. So expect a better presentation of all the information, all the links, all the photographs from our guests, but then also any videos and other media will be included in a much more enjoyable manner than in the past. But that is enough about the podcast as a whole. Let's talk about today's show. We will be speaking with Beth Pratt Bergstrom. She is the executive director of the California chapter of the National Wildlife Federation. And she also leads the Save LA Cougars campaign, which is working to build a wildlife crossing over the 101 freeway in Los Angeles. I would describe Beth as an extremely practical and grounded person who is actively finding beneficial solutions so that nature and humans can coexist. One of the things I appreciate about Beth is that she is one of those people who is more interested in inspiring people so that they learn to care instead of beating them over the head with polemics and fright tactics. So let's start off this season talking about urban wildlife with Beth Pratt Bergstrom. My name is Beth Pratt Bergstrom. I am a lifelong advocate for wildlife and also someone who just worships being in the outdoors. I've worked in places like Yellowstone and Yosemite, but also enjoy nature everywhere, even in cities like Los Angeles, where there's more nature than people think. My current role is the Regional Executive Director for California for the National Wildlife Federation, and I lead the Save LA Cougars campaign, which is to build a wildlife crossing, the biggest in the world, to help save a population of mountain lions from extinction, but also to help all wildlife in an urban area, which to some people is like, what, there's wildlife in cities? So I have the best job in the world, but personally, just make sure I'm outdoors anytime I can be. (laughs) So I think the first thing we should probably do for everyone is make sure they know what the National Wildlife Federation is and why they should care about what it is. Most people know Ranger Rick. I grew up reading Ranger Rick. A lot of generation my age did. A lot of grandparents give Ranger Rick a magazine for gifts. So most people might know the National Wildlife Federation is Ranger Rick. But it's one of the oldest and largest conservation groups. It's over 80 years old. We have 6 million supporters nationwide. What I like about it is it's very much a big tent. You can have vegan animal rights, progressive people like me in it. But you also have NRA members who, you know, have 
a very different approach to the way we do things here in California. But on the other hand, we all come together to find common ground for people and wildlife. That is one of the things that excites me because as we know, especially in this current climate, there's not enough of that happening right now. The National Wildlife Federation obviously is a conservation group and we work a lot on wildlife issues from releasing bison back to tribal lands to cleaning up the Gulf when the big oil spill happened to the Great Lakes, looking at how cleaning up that environment as well. But we also do a lot with connecting people and especially children to nature through our school programs, educational publications like Ranger Rick. But I actually think the best thing we do that really makes a difference for both conservation as people is we have this certified wildlife habitat program. And we have all this free education about what you can do in your own backyard to help wildlife. Planting native plants, putting in a bird bath, putting in a bat house, all these things that both help people because you're increasing your green space in your backyard or schoolyard or business, or even, you don't even need a yard. You can do this on an apartment balcony. So you're bringing more green into your own life, which studies have shown provide great benefits to you, but also you're creating habitat for wildlife that was taken away. It's easy to do, it's accessible, and we have over 200,000 nationwide. That becomes a conservation success story that every citizen can participate in. And you are the director for this region, correct? So is that specifically California or the Southwest or Western U.S.? So I'm the regional executive director for California. We have seven regions nationwide, and I am the only region that is one state, but I'm the biggest region. And of course, it's California. It's a nation state, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you get involved with that? Were you a kid that grew up already immersed in this, or is this Mm -hmm. something you came upon later in life? How do you go from little bitty Beth to Beth that is now the regional director for California? It's a good question that I ask a lot of people too because obviously my job is to get people connected to the outdoors and to wildlife so I'm always interested how they came to it and I think most people who are in this work or who just love the outdoors or wildlife most of them answer they got it from their parents and I am no different my parents love to be outside I wouldn't say they were athletic you know it's not like they were outside doing really strenuous things but we would go whale watching on Cape Cod we'd walk on the beach a lot we had local woods Carlisle State Forest we used to go to every weekend and take the dog and we would walk the trail so I just had a childhood, very lucky childhood, and what I want for all kids, no matter where they grow up, whether it's L.A. or a rural area, I just had a childhood of outdoors, and my parents were also like animals, so that's, you know, where I got from them. I think I also got it, though, from watching things like Born Free and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, which really connected me to wildlife that I didn't have, because obviously in suburban Massachusetts in 1970s, the best I could hope for was a squirrel or frogs. It's interesting to me that wildlife was starting to come back and where I grew up now has coyotes and deer which did not exist when I was growing up but the best I could hope for back then was frogs and squirrels so watching these shows about lions and you know wildlife in Yellowstone really inspired me so it just was about getting to this role which is really the role of a lifetime just being true to my values which is working in this field you know I have a biology field undergrad although I'm not a typical tree hugger I also have an MBA so it's always been for me about how do we make change in the world work and the context of our capitalistic system because for better or for worse that's what we got (laughs) and just always took jobs that had a value system attached to it even if I've worked for some of the biggest companies in the country and also nonprofits so I've switched back and forth and it's just been about making sure that whatever job I took whether it be for nonprofit or business had that value system of the environment and wildlife attached to it after working in Yellowstone in Yosemite I was lucky enough to be selected for this job so what kind of work were you doing before when you were in Yellowstone in Yosemite Yellowstone 
I was the director of sustainability for the concessioner there. Because we think of national parks as these pristine areas and it's wilderness. However, there's also small cities within them. I mean, anybody who's been to Yosemite Valley knows there's three hotels and this many restaurants. And it's the same in Yellowstone. So my job was to ensure that everything was sustainable and green. So, you know, if there was remodeling being done in the hotels, had to be green. Was the seafood source sustainably? When I worked there, we did some really cool green energy projects that the employee proposed. One was we started taking the fryer oil from the restaurants and using it to heat the hotels. So it was a really fun job in trying to improve the quality of the sustainability initiatives in the park. It was great because both the park service and the concessioner who I worked for Zantero was really behind it. But it was not just the internal, it was also about getting park visitors to make the connection and to get them to change their behavior. Because climate change and issues like pollution, those affect parks too. So we did some really creative stuff. One of the things we opened was a store dedicated to education about how climate change affects wildlife. So we'd have cute stuffed animals like this, but there'd be messaging. She's holding a stuffed animal. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. We'd have messaging around the stuffed animal like, yay, this grizzly bear is impacted because of climate change. And you can make a good consumer choice. To, if you want to see grizzly bears in Yellowstone in the future, make good consumer choices. So it, it was also about getting the park visitor to really understand that if we want wildlife and we want parks to be here in the future, we need to change our actions at home. That was a great job. The winters were really cold, though. I mean, I'm from Massachusetts, but I'm a California girl at heart. 20 below for weeks? Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. And then I was the vice president CFO for, it's now named the Yosemite Conservancy, so the nonprofit that helped support Yosemite either through capital projects, like they just finished last week, they reopened the Mariposa Grove, which was... Oh, so it is open again now. Yeah, it is opening. That was like a $40 million renovation, which I can't wait. I haven't been over there to see it yet, mostly because I've been in L.A. To education, managing the park educational bookstores. So that was a great job. I was there for almost a decade. So just had a, amazing jobs. And I think most people can do that if, again, you attach that value system to it that makes sure the company you're working for, even if they're a corporation or a business, at least has some of your values, whatever that may be attached to it. There's an interesting thing mm-hmm. with nature and with wildlife where it seems like once people kind of look at it, they recognize like an inherent value in it, whether they thought there was one or not. But there is still like this social disconnect where a person can go somewhere like Yosemite and they could spend a week there and they could think it's the greatest place on earth. And then they will throw their ice cream wrapper on the ground on the way out or break several regulations in the park, like stop and photograph bears that they shouldn't be photographing (laughs) and various other things. And there's Mm -hmm. just this disconnect that they don't realize that these things can have an impact far beyond what it seems like is completely impactless in their action. So what sort of things do you do to try to combat that? Because you've mentioned education multiple Mm -hmm. times, and I imagine trying to get people to understand those disconnects has got to be a large part of your outreach. Right. My whole approach to my work has changed radically, I'd say in the past 10 years. It's how do you get people to value something? We have less success with the word education. And I don't want all the teachers in my education department to get mad because that is vital. We need educational processes. We need educational materials. But those are almost for people already down the road of a value system. Right. It sounds like homework. And so you have to already want to do the homework to agree to do it. Right. So you first, what I've really shifted to is you have to first inspire people to care and to value something. And then that stuff, you don't even have to really work that hard at that point. 
point. This mountain lion work we're doing down here has been, I think, proof that this can really work. And it's because I think as environmentalists or conservationists or whatever ist you are or whatever you're trying to change, we kind of forget why people do care and why they get involved. You know, I bet if you asked yourself, like, why did you get interested in the outdoors or the environment or why did you become an advocate for wildlife or the environment? It wasn't because somebody, when you were in second grade, said, oh, you're a bad person because you're littering. Climate change is killing the planet or the Clean Water Act's important because you're a polluter. Now, those are all true statements and important ones, but you got probably engaged in the outdoors or started liking wildlife because something captured your imagination. For me, I had frogs in my backyard when I was little and I used to love those frogs. And then I would, you know, again, read these books like Wind in the Willows or Watch Born Free. We tend to skip that step these days. And for kids that miss that value system, the approach to adults be, well, you're bad, so you have to fix something. So again, I've really been focused more on trying to inspire action by getting people to love something first. That's really been the approach to the work we do, not just in LA with the cougars, but all the work we do in California. And this is different than the other regions. We focused on urban areas, getting people really jazzed and excited about what they have in their urban area. So in LA, it's this wonderful P-22 who happened to march into the middle of the city. And you see how it's captured people's imaginations who normally wouldn't be excited about wildlife. We have people to give to this campaign who's never given to NWF or wildlife organizations before. But more importantly for me, like I'm in the schools a lot, you have kids, this one parent told me their little boy thinks P-22 is a superhero and he puts a cape on and he walks around saying, I'm P-22 and this is how I solve things. So you're actually getting people to be comfortable with admittedly a dangerous predator in their midst, although the risk is so low, and to connect with the native wildlife in a way that they haven't. And I'm not going to have to worry about them at 20. They're going to vote for environmental candidates. They're going to support environmental efforts. But it's also fun, you know, we talk a lot about kids, but to see the adults also rally around. Again, people who follow P-22 and who are supporting this wildlife crossing, they're not, I mean, you have the usual environmental suspects, but these are people who normally this is off their radar. And that is a lesson because this crossing that we're working on, people have been talking about trying to do something here for 20, 30 years. They knew something had to be done, but they talked about it in very scientific terms, ecosystem resiliency and biodiversity increase. And of course, anybody outside the environmental community is like, snore, who gives a crap? You get this mountain lion on the scene who is lonely, dateless, and trapped. And now you have a story that everybody can relate to because who can't relate to being dateless, right? Yeah, and, and let's explain this a little mm-hmm. bit more in sure. case people are unclear. Let's mm-hmm. let everyone know what P-22 yes, is. That's a good point. <laughs> and the wildlife crossing specifically that you're talking about, which is the campaign that you've mentioned. So let's give people a little backstory on that's P-22. Point, yeah. P-22 really, uh, you know, he, he's got an amazing story, again, that really changed my approach and view of conservation. As I told you, most of my career... I had spent in national parks. And and many who came up in my generation and was schooled in conservation, this is, you know, you you put the wildlife in places like Yosemite and you check the box, you saved them and people belong in cities and wildlife don't. Everything's separate. Everything's separate. Keep the two. We're somehow part of an ecosystem that depends on each other, but we should be separated. And of course, now I see the ridiculousness of that. Wildlife doesn't see city boundaries. And of course, why would you want to keep people separated from wildlife, right? So I had just taken this job. I had read the story of P-22 in 2012 in the LA Times. And I first thought it was like, although fake news wasn't a term back then, I first was like, there's no way that's true. There's no way a mountain lion's living in the middle of LA. Like, that's just not. But I called up 
the National Park Service biologist who's named in the story, Jeff Sikich, who's amazing. He's doing groundbreaking work along with his partner, Seth Riley, on the research on urban cats. It's never really been done before. You I mean, mountain lions have been studied in real world areas. But I called him up and he was gracious enough to take me around in Griffith Park where P-22 had ended up. P-22 had grown up here in the Santa Monica Mountains, which they know from DNA testing. But he traveled, you know, who knows how many miles by the crow flies. It's about 40 to find a new home and ended up crossing the 101 and the 405 to end up in Griffith Park, which is eight square miles, tiny for a mountain lion. Mountain lion's usual male mountain lion range is on average 200 square miles. And for those Mm -hmm. unfamiliar Mm -hmm. with Los Angeles, the Santa Monica Mountains and Griffith Park, despite being, you said, about 40 miles apart, right? Mm -hmm. What's in between them is a huge congested city and very little green space. And when you mention things like the 405 freeway and the 101, these are huge freeways. Yes. These these aren't two-lane freeways with Mm -hmm. a few occasional vehicles. These are eight to 12-lane freeways full of trucks and vehicles at all hours of the night and day. So yeah, he made, I mean, you just hit on it. He made this astounding journey. To me, what I love about wildlife, they just continue the wonderment, the amazement that they just do things you never think they would do. So yeah, he walks through places like Beverly Hills, Bel Air. He's within two miles of the Hollywood Walk of Fame and he makes it. As someone who has retraced his route or likely route almost 10 times now, I can't believe I'm not dead. I don't know how he made it. There were no reports of him doing it either, no, right? That's no the one other said, thing. hey, there's Nobody a really big animal on the street. Mountain lions are nicknamed ghost cats. They are masters of stealth. So I just love that we think we know everything, but yet a mountain lion can creep through the most densely populated urban region in America and make it to Griffith Park without anybody noticing. And if it wasn't for remote cameras, we still might not know he was there. But yeah, so he makes this journey and gets to Griffith Park and we celebrate him because, oh my God, this, you know, he's been there since 2012. He coexists. He shows that mountain lions are not waiting in the woods trying to eat us. He coexists with, (laughs) yeah. If it walked through the entire city and didn't eat a single person, I think that says a lot. He he doesn't see us as prey. In fact, there's some great footage. Uh, I think Miguel Ordiana, the scientist who first discovered as part of a study, the first photos of P-22, he's a great guy who works for the Natural History Museum. He's got some great footage of P-22 on the camera where for some reason it's like 5 a.m. He's sitting and so the camera's taking a few photos and he's sitting within view of the camera and then you see him move and then about five seconds later a jogger goes by. <laughs> so that jogger never knew. You know, but it just shows he doesn't see us as prey. And I can, I can never say P-22 wouldn't attack somebody. I could never say any wildlife won't. But the risk is so low. If you really are worried about your own safety, don't get on the 101. Mountain lions have killed, by some estimation, some of the early reports we don't know is six people in California in 100 years, which of course is terrible when it happens, but six people in 100 years, you know, step ladders have killed more. So I, you know, you, you just have to put the risk in perspective. I am and obviously, passing yeah. legislation to remove step ladders yeah, exactly. from all of Yeah, Angeles. exactly. You know, we get in car accidents, which you look at the stats on that. My God, I mean, you know, just in LA alone, you're talking hundreds a year are killed. So worry about your car. Don't worry about being attacked by a mountain lion so much. But he's shown he can coexist. I mean, you know, you have millions of people that visit that park a year. So he's just great poster child. He made this journey. He's living in this circumstance we just can't imagine a mountain lion is. But he's not a success story. He's trapped. He has probably figured out because if you look at Griffith Park, and for those of you not in California listening, we say the for all our freeways because they are sacred. <laughs> uh, there's the 134 north of Griffith 
Griffith Park, the five on the east and the 101 on the west. And then below him is Hollywood. He's not getting through there. It's too dense. So that might be the most dangerous place. Exactly. For a that, yeah, or a cougar, right? <laughs> so he's trapped. I think he's figured out, you know what? There's plenty of deer here and I'm not doing those freeways again. When we've retraced these routes, we've used bridges, but I've stood there and watched the traffic even at 2 a.m. Running across 10 lanes of traffic. I mean, just what a brave animal. I wouldn't do it. But he's trapped. He's never going to have a girlfriend. He's never going to pass on these incredible genetics of his. What he's done quite effectively is illustrate what's happening to all his relatives in the Santa Monica Mountains, which is genetic isolation. Which again, when the scientists talk about it, they'd use very technical terms with everybody. Now they're like, oh, I get it. He's a dateless mountain lion. He'll never have a girlfriend. Oh, right. That's the problem. And that's what's happening is in this entire Santa Monica Mountains, the 101 freeway has essentially become a unpenetrable wall. So you have a population south of the freeway that cannot get out for the most part. And then new blood north of the freeway can't get in. Most mountain lions who try it die. And so what you're seeing is a lot of inbreeding. So the mountain lions that do live here, like some kittens a couple months ago or whenever it was released, the father was the female's grandfather, great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandfather, right? So you're seeing what the scientists are showing through their study is the genetics are collapsing and they modeled and indeed if we don't intervene within 50 years they will die out because of genetic defects. They just won't be able to breed anymore. It'll be The genetics just won't make it work. Much like what the Florida panther went through. What we need to do is we need to help these animals get in and out of this pretty much formal barrier which is the freeway, which we didn't think about. Again, back 50 years ago or whenever the freeway was put in longer than that, nobody thought about this. We were still in the mind that, oh, if we have an island of habitat over here and an island of habitat over here for wildlife, we're good. But science now shows us it doesn't work. Islands don't work. Animals need large-scale connectivity. And mountain lions who have large habitats especially, they're going to feel the most acute effects of this sooner, which is what we're seeing with this study. But what these same scientists are showing is this is causing the same problems in salamanders and birds. This isolation, they are slowly genetically declining and becoming isolating as well. And anybody who studied Darwin, even in middle school, knows isolation is not good. Even in mm-hmm. humans, there are examples of times where the gene pool has been made extremely shallow and it leads to extremely sickly people mm-hmm. who cannot compete with those outside of their community. And that's what's going on with these cats. The study showed that they have at best 50 years before they genetically collapse. But what that doesn't take into account is we're in an urban area and these cats face other urban threats, again, like getting hit by a car. So when you think of the entire Santa Monica Mountains and even to Ventura, to where P-22 lives in Griffith Park, and Griffith Park is the terminus of the Santa Monica Mountains. If you look at habitat size and prey density, there's probably 10 to 15 cats at any one time in this area. When you start pulling out the dominant males, like there's three, and two get hit by a car, you're talking game over much quicker. Or cats down here, another big problem is rat poison, which we could do a whole show on why that's bad. We've had several cats in the National Park Service study that have died from rat poison exposure. P-22 himself almost died from it. They were able to treat him, but he may not be so lucky next time. So you have all these other urban threats that could make this game over much quicker. But there's good news here. Like, people actually want to do something about this. And his story has inspired that and build this wildlife crossing, which will be what they've identified as the best area to do this on the 101, to get animals across. It's the only place where there's still protected space on both sides. It's the last 1,600 feet, I think, of where that actually can happen. We are underway to build what is probably going to be the largest wildlife crossing in the world. Not because I want it to be the largest. I would love it to be the smallest. I'd probably get more sleep. But... (laughs) 
It's because it's the biggest freeway in the world. Well, if, yeah. if things go well, it could become the smallest because others are being built that are larger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And getting back to your like your original question, like how do you show people the impact of trash? I think when you put it in the context of real impacts like that person is not a bad person they probably don't know that if a squirrel got a hold of that and if there was plastics in it and a bird got a hold of it you're probably spelling the death for those animals and i think that's what happened here is nobody really paid attention to the need to do something until oh the lonely mountain lion that is sad we don't want we love mountain lions we don't want them to die so yeah this project's exciting it's a public-private partnership national wildlife federation we got involved as one of the late partners they've been talking again about doing something for a while and agencies like the Park Service has done the research and the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy have preserved the land. Caltrans, obviously, it's their road. They want to do it. But the thing that was missing is Caltrans is like, we'll do it. We just need the money. And that's what's exciting about this one. I don't have to fight anybody. The land's protected. Everybody's in. It's just about people writing checks. That's easy. You know, even a $60 million project, that's easy. (laughs) One of the things that you're trying to do is build mm-hmm. essentially what is an overpass, correct, right. over the 101. But what people might imagine is that's just a bridge, but it'll be its own park in a sense, right? This would be as if it was an extension of a park that went above mm-hmm. a major freeway. Yeah, Clark Stevens, who works for the Resource Conservation District, who has been a part of the project team, I love how he puts it. You're putting the nose in the mountain back. You're essentially putting in land that you dug up. So yeah, these aren't just bridges. You know, anybody who's listening, just Google wildlife crossings worldwide. They're beautiful. You know, you have a structure under it, but you are connecting that green space, connecting the landscape, which we know is so vital. I mean, we use mountain lions a lot because they get attention. And of course, they are the species most acutely affected by this. But you're basically reconnecting an ecosystem, which helps all wildlife and vegetation. I mean, especially with things like climate change, even plants need to be able to move to survive, right? Isolation does not help with any environment, you know, challenge that plants or animals are facing. Fire, if you can't move, you know, if you're an animal that can't get out of the fire zone, much like people, connectivity is just so important for everything. So yeah, this is going to be this beautiful green space connected over the freeway. And what you have to do so wildlife will use it, and this is the good news, like wildlife crossings are not new. The U.S. is not as far along as places like Belgium and the Netherlands. I mean, they've been doing these things for 20, 30 years. There are some in the U.S. Montana has some, Nevada, Wyoming. You think those states, well, they're not really environmental. But again, this shows this is such a bipartisan, like we don't agree on a lot of things in this country. Most people agree that wildlife is good. Most people agree that they love wildlife. They may show it differently. And so it just shows like some of these states you wouldn't think of as environmental, these crossings have gone up first. And some of that has to do with like the ungulate migrations there, human safety. You get way more vehicle accidents when you have these vast elk herds. And so some of these are intervening, but it's also because they want to help wildlife get across the road. So yeah, Google these, look at photos. You know, we're really catching up and this. I I think it's great that the U.S. is now in California, probably going to have the largest in the world. But what's different with this one too, is not just that it's bigger, it's that this has never been attempted in this urban setting. You look at these and I've toured a lot of them. I mean, these are out in the middle of nowhere. I toured one in Wyoming. The DOT guy there was telling me that they get a lot of traffic, 10,000 cars a year. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, we have 100,000 cars a day that use the 101 right here. So because of that, there's things we're going to have to do here that they wouldn't have to do in rural Wyoming. First of all, one of the reasons the price tag is, I don't necessarily consider it high given the hundreds of millions been spent to protect land and what I know of other transportation projects. But one of the things that does make this a little more complex to design engineering is you look at these crossings elsewhere, they are a straight shot across the freeway because they 
they pick the easiest place to engineer it. Here, we only have one choice and they're gonna have to angle it and slope it. So it becomes a really complex engineering project. But the other thing is the 101 freeway never gets quiet. So we have to put, which you don't see on these other ones, some you do, but these sound vegetated walls so that they really don't think they're going on the road. People ask, can you save money and only make it like four feet wide? You can't because the wildlife are not gonna use a slim corridor like that. There's science behind for every foot long it is, you have to widen it. So again, they have to be comfortable in thinking that it is part of the landscape to use these things. And that becomes more difficult when you're talking about the 101, which never stops and has 100,000 cars a day. So it's interesting, a lot of the unique features of this, which is great because it's going to set a precedent. You're looking at the site of some really important scientific study for how to make these work in other cities. So what sort of feedback are you getting from the community, both from individuals and from organizations and from, say, the state itself? Right. This is both the hardest project I've ever worked on, mainly because of the price tag, but in some respects it's been the most inspiring and the easiest because there really isn't people to fight you know usually you'd have to fight over the land or people don't want to do this but the reception has been in my mind unprecedented and you know I've worked obviously with the National Park Service for most of my career and usually when you go to public meetings on things like this you'll get about 50% are for and 50% are against I mean the public meetings on this wildlife crossing the first one we had that Caltrans did as part of the public process nobody spoke up against I mean there's 400 people there the comments on the final EIR, I forget the exact numbers, but it was like 8,000 comments with 15 opposed. The support of the community, city of Agora Hills, where the crossing is, you know, they're in. You know, they passed a city resolution saying we're supportive of this. Every city around here has passed that. The Southern California Association of Governments, which represents tens of millions of cities around Southern California, passed a resolution. Mayor Garcetti loves this project. He mentioned it in his last state of the city or whatever they call that. And then the general public, which to me is even more important. It inspires people. I do school talks. We have P22 Day in Griffith Park. 5,000 people showed up. More importantly to me, we worked in the L.A. school district and some of the other districts, and kids studied wildlife crossings and the mountain lions. And then at P22 Day, they had models they had built. It's not that there's no opposition, but it's pretty slim. It tends to focus on two things. One is, this is California. And one of the other reasons that this is not as heavy a lift as it would be elsewhere is California is the only state in the country where mountain lions cannot be hunted for sport. And that was passed in 1990 by Prop 117. But the history of mountain lion protections, again, very bipartisan. Ronald Reagan got involved. It was just something, a shared value of California. So what you have here is most people in the state, time and again, prove that they want mountain lions on the landscape, regardless of whether they're dangerous or not, that they are part of the landscape. And that's been voted by ballot measure. And when P-22, those of you who don't know, he lives in Griffith Park, and he one day happened to the LA Zoo is in Griffith Park, munch on a koala bear. (laughs) God, you know, pick the cutest animal in the world. And, you know, I just was actually giving a talk at the LA Zoo and I was thanking them because any other state in the country, hey, any other state in the country, this cat would have been shot or removed immediately upon detection, okay? But I will say when he eats a cute animal like a koala, you know, I remember that morning going, you know, in my whole career, never thought I'd be issuing a statement about a mountain lion in Los Angeles eating a koala bear, but uh, sure enough. But it was interesting watching again that values had changed because what happened? A couple people at first were like, get that cat out of there. You know, he's dangerous. He ate a koala bear, which it's not that he was, he looked like a raccoon to him. He didn't, you know. It, it may have been the first time in history that those two animals have had that opportunity. It was. That I think it was the first time, you know, <laughs> they don't exist on the same continent. So yeah, he made, both of them made history and I, 
uh, you know, hopefully the koala feels, you know, even in his <laughs> being killed, he at least, you know, went down the record books. But it was really wonderful watching this because, you know, a couple people early, like, were posting on Facebook and, oh my, uh, writing letters and he should be. But no, the majority of people, you watch the LA Times in an editorial, he stays. Ted Lieu and a lot of the city council members were like Paul Koretz and uh, others were like, hey, no, that cat, you know, that cat belongs there. It was marvelous to watch. People writing in, you know, 10 to 1 letters to the LA Times. No, he's not more dangerous. And indeed, he belongs there. The koala doesn't belong there. But most notably, the LA Zoo, the director, was wonderful. He came out and said, our bad. Our fence wasn't big enough. We'll do better. Not P-22's fault. And I thought that was a wonderfully progressive view for a zoo to take. And they are. And to also recognize that the native wildlife was important. So again, it gets back to that, you know, these values have really changed. That was a long lead into that. I think the opposition really comes down to there are some people who don't think mountain lions should ever be on this landscape. And I'm never going to convince them otherwise. Luckily in California, because of this value system, that's not a lot of people. But those people I can't convince. What I can only present as the facts is this crossing is not going to bring more mountain lions. Mountain lions are already here. And mountain lions are extremely self-regulating. You're never going to have an overpopulation of mountain lions. These guys are solitary creatures who fight to the death. The reason P-22 had to leave is because the dominant male at the time would have eaten them. So they're extremely self-regulating. So this is not going to bring more mountain lions. It's just going to ensure that they continue in the future. That one I can't, I, I can't really convince people who are just dead set against predators, but luckily it's the few. Um, the other opposition I think is, oh my God, you're spending $60 million in taxpayer money. I mean, my God, there's hospitals that need fixing and roads. And, and that's one of the reasons National Wildlife Federation, the organization committed to raising the majority of the money for this through private funds. So we have people like Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation who gave in the Annenberg. So we're really going after private dollars here. The only public funds we are using are funds that have to be spent on conservation. They are earmarked. You can't change them. But for the most part, we're asking the philanthropic community to step up and put their money here so that we aren't taking away from other projects. Most of the people who come in on that side, like you're wasting money, once it's like, oh, well, you're not wasting taxpayer money. And yeah, Leo has the right to give to whoever he wants. So that's mainly, I'd say, where we've gotten opposition. But for the most part, and this is why people like Leo and the Annenberg have given, they've seen the grassroots support for this. This isn't just three environmentalists saying this has to be done. This is an entire region saying we want to do this for mountain lions, combined with the science saying this is necessary. So what is keeping it from happening? Is it strictly that it costs $60 million and $60 mm-hmm. million haven't been raised yet? Well, right now, nothing. You know, for $60 million, I like to divide this into four phases. I mean, this thing is underway, so it's not that it's stopped. But yes, what could stop it is money. So the four phases, and these are all phases that Caltrans has to do for a project. So the first one had to do a feasibility study. The MRCA and Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy funded that. Done. Second phase, the environmental documents, which is, you know, gets to 30% engineering. That's the phase we just finished. And Save LA Cougars campaign funded that through donations, through the State Coastal Conservancy put up a million dollars all through the effort. So that's thanking everybody for stepping up and donating. Done. And that's where most projects die. You talk to crossing projects across, they can't get through the environmental documents because the catch-22 is you have people that'll give to construct, you know, like bricks and mortar, but they don't want to do the planning, right? They want to make sure it's going to go. So that's done. The next phase, which Caltrans is, is underway right now, is the final design and engineering. So I call it the blueprints phase. It's literally, you will have a, the blueprints. They're starting that to keep them on track. So to have no delays, we have to raise 
10 million by the end of the year and we're at 3.7 so we're getting there we'll get them that money and we're already working on construction dollars we then have to raise the balance for construction which is about 40 to 50. I never say easy when I talk about a 60 million dollar project but that's two people writing 25 million dollar checks to get their name on it. Listeners out there if you've got yes. spare 25 million dollars. 25 million you can get your name on this crossing. Yeah we can help you make that happen. <laughs> yes no problem. Uh, <laughs> we do have um, recognition for lower levels if you're like me and can't afford <laughs> that check but that is I mean, once you have the blueprints, the fundraising becomes less challenging because the project's ready. And plus, naming opportunity for 100,000 cars a day. But yeah, so it's underway. And really, at this point, the, really the most significant obstacle to stop this is we don't meet our fundraising targets. So people listening that mm -hmm. are interested in this, what can they do to find out more about it yeah. and get involved? And maybe you should mention the little cuddly creature oh, sitting yes. in your lap. Oh, yes, I know, my, my new support <laughs> animal. Um, so if you want to get involved, www.savelacougars.org is the official website. There's an email newsletter you can sign up for. I won't spam you. It comes from me. If you want to help volunteer, if you want to donate, of course. With this, we've done creative things, again, that get at both fundraising, but also that value system change and getting people more comfortable with native wildlife. Things that we've developed, like the one you're talking about, who's sitting on my lap. This is a custom P22 plush toy, which I can't stop hugging <laughs> because... <laughs> she has sincerely been hugging yeah. it the entire time we've been talking. It's true. Well, it just feels so good. Now, most of us would love to hug P22 in real life, but realize that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, you may regret it. Yeah, you may regret it. Please don't try that at home, kids. But you can hug this one. He comes with his own collar and P22 tag. This is just a, an example of one of the things we do to help raise money. And the other, I have a P22 t-shirt on. So on that site, you can also go to our store. We have uh, Cougars of LA trading cards. We have P22 cast paw prints. And 100% of the proceeds for all these things go right back into the campaign. So just to give you some idea, like this P22 plush, he'll be, he's not available yet. The one I'm holding is the only one in existence just takes a long time to produce these things. He'll be available in October. At P22 Day, which you should mark your calendars, October 27th, Griffith Park. 5,000 people came last year. Lots of fun exhibits on wildlife. We have bands. Uh, Kazal, the great LA band, is performing again. But these will be available for sale starting then. If we sell all of them, we raise 50 grand for the wildlife crossing. You know, I mean, it's not 60 million, but it all adds up. Plus, you get this wonderful toy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have some fun t-shirts and other items, but but my other favorite is the Cougars of LA trading cards. They're a set of 50 that have the biographies of the mountain lions and the study so you can learn more about them. And we also donate those to schools so they can use them for education. P-22 and this wildlife crossing have become very large passion projects for you. Mm -hmm. And they have led to things such as what I watched last night, which was your TEDx talk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you either recently have or are about to release a book. It's out. Yeah, it's already yeah. come out. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, mm -hmm. so tell us about those two projects and how those came about. The shift for me from thinking of wildlife as only appropriate in a Yellowstone or Yosemite, that it actually no, um, wildlife actually should be in human spaces. It just changed my philosophy so much that it, be, it did become a passion, not only to save mountain lions, or I do wildlife work across the state. In fact, my fox and porpoise scientists, Bill and Bill, would be very mad at me right now. You always talk about the cougars. They always get the attention. In fact, when P-22 ate the koala, 
koala bear, Bill Kinnear, who works on this project with Golden Gate Cetacean Research, he emailed me, our porpoises would never do anything like that. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but, I don't know. If yeah. we threw a koala into <laughs> a pool with a porpoise, we might find out otherwise. <laughs> yeah, we, I guess we should test that theory. But yeah, it did lead to some really trying to get people thinking this way. And I think my ideas just started resonating. And that's why I got invited to do the TEDx talk. I mean, then Heyday Books, who I've I worked with in Yosemite for years, Malcolm, who's a good friend and founder. He's like, you know, there's a book in this. And of course, P22 is the cover, but it's about this sort of new model of coexistence across the state and things that are going on. And both the TED Talk sort of mirrors it, where it's not only P22, you have marine bases being stewards to desert tortoises. You have the Facebook campus who has made a home for Facebook foxes all the way up to Mark Zuckerberg who supports this. You know, foxes showed up and most companies would have been like, well, they're a pest, let's get them off. And they're like, well, can we just keep them? You know, you just see example after example of this happening across the state that I thought were, again, instead of writing a book about how bad everybody's doing, let's just celebrate what's possible, which is both the TED Talk and the book. And the book, by the way, my father told me I was crazy, but our royalties go back to the conservation work. I don't get any royalties. It was important to me that it was, you know, not so much profit for me, but let's give it back to the wildlife. But what's been great is people have said it's changed their view because this is so indoctrinated in us that wildlife shouldn't be in human spaces. For example, when I did my TEDx talk, you know, I worked in Yosemite and I actually, my home, although I'm almost never there, is up outside Yosemite. Yosemite is a really important place in my life. I was married there, I was engaged there, and it's just been a part of my life for so long. One of the scientists I'd known for 20 years was watching my TED talk and she came up to me afterwards. She's like, oh my God, everything you said went against everything I'm trying to do in my work. I try to keep the people in Yosemite away from wildlife and, and they shouldn't be. She's like, studies even show that wildlife are more stressed around people or in developed areas. I was like, well, I'm more stressed in a city. I mean, you know, who isn't? But does that mean they shouldn't be there? Because you wouldn't tell a person if they're more stressed, they don't have a right to live. And indeed what you're seeing is animals are adapting. It's us who have the hang up right? It's us who are like, you shouldn't be there. But there's this whole field now of evolution of urban wildlife. It actually is sort of changing these animals, you know, not just personality wise, but actually they're adapting in ways that then get passed on so that they can survive because they have to. I mean, we're paving over this world and I don't see us putting aside too many more national parks, but if if it's good enough for P22 and that's the way wildlife stays, then we got to get over our hang up. So it was important to me to you know, really keep getting these ideas out there because really what was at stake here was if we kept this thinking that wildlife could only be in these places, the wildlife weren't going to have a future. But to me, the other point, which I, I don't know if it comes across as strong in the book and the TED Talk, but which is just as important to me, is that if we tell people the only way you can really access wildlife and nature is to go to Yosemite, how elitist and how inaccessible. I mean, as a kid, having that access to nature, which wasn't perfect, it was the power lines and the sewage plant, but that got me through a lot of, you know, I had a great childhood, nothing terrible, but I'd go out there and if I was sad, it would make me happy. To not connect kids and people to what is here, and there's a lot of nature in LA that people ignore, um, that's denying them that same to me, almost a fundamental right of having access to the natural world. And it's honestly becomes almost a social justice issue as well. That You know, there's no one right answer here. You know, white males have dominated how conservation should be looked at and how wildlife should be looked at for such a long time. But we need to be open to other views. And if someone feeding a squirrel or the ducks in a local park, as long as it's proved food, is just as legitimate and natural experience is me seeing a bear in Yosemite or you know having a hummingbird in your feeder in an apartment balcony just as legitimate as me having a mountain bluebird in my six acres up there so I think that that to me has become just as important to make 
wildlife and nature accessible and not something that only if you have the money to get to a Yosemite that you have access to. What gets to the core of it and why that is so important is on P22 Day, the first year, we had a group of kids from Esperanza Elementary. These kids are in the most dense part of the area that you can think of in LA. You know, they don't have access to a lot of nature. But Brad Rumble, who's just revolutionary in this work, he's converting schoolyards. He did it at Leopoldi to green space. These kids also, at a lot of these schools, I mean, 30% of them have undocumented parents. So the trials I had as a kid, there maybe a boy didn't like me where I go to nature. These kids are going home not knowing if their parents are going to be there, right? So they are facing things I can't even. And so these schoolyard habitats have gone in and it's bringing them such joy. Like one, a barring owl showed up and one of the kids discovered it and they're writing stories about barring owls. But one of the classes from there read at P22 Day and the, a little boy, this is like a third grader, got up, dear P22, and he said a lot of stuff. You know, I hope you get a girlfriend. And he's like, like I was standing with a bunch of scientists. And again, I bash scientists a lot, but I, I do have a biology undergrad. I'm, I mean, science is important and I am a scientist, but we also have to have the emotional side. But this little boy says, I'm sorry you're scared and lonely and sad. I've been there before. This is a third grader. And we all look at each other and just like burst into tears. <laughs> And so to me, like that illustrates, I think, something I'm not quite good at getting at is that this work's essential to save animals and wildlife, but it's also essential for people. I think that a fundamental connection to wildlife is something we should all share. Whether you have the luck of birth to be born in a rural area or be born in L.A., and I think that gets at a lot of the, the issues going on in the world right now, too. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I would say also choosing to aid a creature that holds no power over you, but that your decisions can hold power over. Choosing to do the thing because you think it's the thing you should do, that can change a person in a way that they don't foresee. That's a really good point. I feel like there's a quote or something that I can't recall, but it's not your interactions with authority figures that defines you, mm -hmm. it's your interaction with things you hold authority over. Oh, that's like, you know, that's really, again, so relevant for today too, and you're right, because that's the thing with wildlife. We have immense power over their lives. As you said, anything from the candy wrapper we discard without thinking to where we put our roads to what we do in our homes. Like, you put up a fence at home, you don't think about, oh, I want a fence, I don't want to see my neighbors, or I, I want to keep my dog in. You don't think about what that just did for wildlife populations around you, right? So I think most people, once they learn, are like, oh, yeah, I can make accommodations. Sometimes as simple as just putting some small holes in the bottom of the fence so, you know, squirrels or, you know, foxes can walk through your yard. So I agree. You know, we, we have immense power over wildlife's lives, and usually that ends badly for the wildlife. But I love that there does seem to be this awakening, especially in L.A. I mean, you know, we talk about this wildlife crossing being a worldwide model, but it's also the L.A. value system. When P-22 ate that koala, the city rallied around them. The New York Times and the Washington Post both published different stories about what's going on in L.A. Like, wow, they're okay with that? And wow, they're really seeing wildlife as part of their lives. And so to me, that's encouraging because I think we are showing in this area that we are willing to give up some of that power or at least willing to use some of that power in ways, whether it be, you know, building this crossing or being more accommodating. Like most people that learn about the rodenticide issue, which in a short version is rat poison, terrible thing, for, especially for wildlife. Rats don't die in those little boxes. They eat it, go out, and then a fox eats that rat, dies, and then a mountain lion ate that fox 
Officer Cody and then also gets sick. It, it runs up the food chain in ways. So you're not just killing that one rat. Most people, when they learn, are like, oh my God, I didn't know. And of course, change their behavior, right? So I think that the good news is most people are willing to use some of that power. There's certainly a subset that don't. But to me, LA is also setting that model and it's being recognized that the value system here is so different. In fact, where I live in Yosemite, I will say that the tolerance for mountain lions is much lower than LA. You know, I give talks up there too in my backyard and I think more people get panicked around mountain lions. And, you know, their claim to me is, well, those LA folks don't have to live with wildlife. Yes, they do. I see more coyotes in LA than I do where I live. And don't tell me they don't have to live with wildlife. 10 million people hike in a park with P-22 or the Santa Monica Mountains where there are wildlife. This is, you know, an urban park. I think it's also part of P-22's story and, and how fundamental he's changed people is that LA is also setting this worldwide model, not just for a conservation outcome like the crossing, but for a value shift outcome where a city becomes a place where people and wildlife can coexist and people do value wildlife enough to change their behavior. It's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Not everyone who listens to this show is on the West Coast, although that is a large portion of mm-hmm. it. There are people in other states, some people apparently even in some other countries. And what I would say to all those people is this sounds like an issue that only pertains to Los Angeles and the people that live in Los Angeles. But what I would say you are proposing and, mm-hmm. and everyone involved in this are proposing is a model. If this is successful, if this comes to pass and it works as well as advertised and improves the life of wildlife and potentially of residents in Los Angeles, then that becomes a model for other people. You nailed it. I mean, even the process to getting this, you know, is a model that others can replicate. So I'd say, yeah, both the crossing and again, the value system. And I think what's cool is you are seeing other cities, if not building a 60 million wildlife crossing, like Chicago. Chicago just passed a no-kill Like, to deal with their coyote problems, they're not going to kill them, which, as we know, scientifically doesn't work anyway. You actually breed more super coyotes who are resilient, (laughs) right? And we got some nice parrots there. That's right. We get that that ambiance on this show. Yeah, see, we're outside here in the Santa Monica Mountains. (laughs) So the whole city has said, you know what? We're not going to solve our problems by killing these coyotes. We're going to step up as people and say, we'll take responsibility, and we're going to look at non-lethal ways to coexist with these. We had the International Urban Wildlife Conference in San Diego this last year. The Santa Monica Mountains scientist, Seth Riley, was on the planning committee, and it was great to hear. New York did this whole coexist campaign on their subways. So I think other cities are stepping up too, and again, I think it's because people just fundamentally do want to connect with wildlife. And this was a lesson I will say that Yosemite was really good at. When I worked in Yosemite for a decade, I came on in 1999 to the nonprofit. One of the first projects I worked on was they were having terrible bear issues. For those of us who was falling at the time. Bears were breaking into cars. When you say break into cars, they will literally rip a door <laughs> yep. off of a car. Exactly. Rip it <laughs> off, break the glass. They can get in and out in 20 seconds. They know what model cars, how to get in. As visitation increased over the years, bear incidents were increasing. And you know, they were after the food. The only death in Yosemite from an animal is from a deer. So shows you how, <laughs> you know, the bears just wanted your food. They weren't after people. But of course, that increased the likelihood of a conflict happening. For years, this went on. And in fact, this is one of the chapters in my book. The only solution they had was to kill the bears, which, of course, didn't solve the problem. New bears just broke in. And and I think this is the model, and the model we're sort of using in this urban is that finally it dawned on them, this isn't a bear problem. This is a people problem. We can't expect the bears to behave. You know, unlike mountain lions, which mountain lions, you know, they're never going to go in our garbage, all right? They might eat our pets and our livestock. (laughs) 
but they're not after our Twinkies. They are obligate carnivores, it's a technical term, which means they will never go after Cheetos in our back seat. But bears will. They have adapted to life and have been very successful over eons because they eat anything. And in fact, our human food is very appealing to them. So it wasn't the bears. They were just doing what bears do. What bears did typically, and most people think bears are meat eaters. They are, but it's actually a small percentage of the diet. They eat fish. They eat carrion. But they'll also eat insects and flowers and, you know, pine nuts. So what bears did successfully over time is if there wasn't a lot of berries, they'd eat pine nuts. And if they couldn't find a lot of fish, they'd switch to insects, right? They were very good at this. So when you introduce this food source into the valley and you're taking away food sources as development happens outside the park, you know, the bears just do doing their successful evolution strategy, I'm going after those burgers. You can't blame the bear. And indeed, once the park shifted their strategy to penalizing the bears, but to telling the people, hey, if you want to visit this park, you're going to have to take some responsibility so that the bears don't get into trouble. Incidents went down to, um, it went from like almost $600,000. So I think one year it was recently was down to 7,000. People had to take responsibility. And anybody who visits Yosemite knows like you get, if you stay at a hotel, you have to sign there's no food in your car. You get education coming and going. Bear boxes at every campground for you to um, keep anything that might smell like food away yeah. from bears. And I'm about to do the John Muir Trail. I just bought an, I've had bear canisters, but they have the new lightweight ones. You have to, you know, if you're a backpacker, you can't hang your food anymore. You got to put it in these bear canisters and it worked. And I think also what it was great is that impact you're saying the visitors then understood how their behavior could impact behavior they might not have thought of because who would think leaving a Twinkie in your car could kill a bear or a toothpaste tube yeah exactly or your deodorant. exactly yeah. nobody i mean you know you're not to blame the people they didn't know but once they're educated it really showed that they wanted to step up so that was really successful and i think that's really what we're trying to do with this whole urban wildlife movement is that don't kill the mountain lion when he shows up or kill the fox or remove them say instead, okay, how can I help this animal coexist? It doesn't work everywhere. Not every, I'm not advocating for everybody to open up their backyards to mountain lions. That's not appropriate. But where we can, and there's a lot of places where we can, that's how we need to be thinking. And luckily, again, I think that people really are, especially in LA, but some of these other cities are thinking that way. And that, that you know, when you work in conservation, especially these days, is not a lot of good news. And, and that's something that does inspire me is seeing these people step up and do things. Um, you know, right here in Calabasas and Agora Hills, people from both communities have stepped up. And there's a group called Poison Free Malibu. And, you know, they've done efforts to ban rat poisons in these areas. You can't totally ban them, but these cities around here have pledged not to use them on their property and things like that. So you really do see people stepping up. And I think that's what inspires me when there is a lot of bad news of species going endangered and public lands being taken away. So that's, you know, there is some some hope. (laughs) Before we wrap this up, Mm -hmm. let's tell everyone where they can go to find out more about everything we've talked about, Mm -hmm. to keep up with you to get your book. Oh, thanks, and, yeah. Uh, and I will also mm-hmm. post a link to that TEDx talk oh, should okay, someone great. decide they want to watch that as okay, well. Okay, thanks. And yeah, and I think what you're doing is important because the outdoors is so, for me, that is fundamental to the health of people, but also fundamental to being outdoors is the wildlife, right? Would it really be the outdoors if it wasn't linked to the natural world? So I can't say enough about you know the efforts to show. And, and outdoors, you, again, you don't have to be a super athlete, right? I mean, I'm not. I'm about to hike the Muir Trail, but I'm going to be very slow. When I did it in my tweet. Yes. When I did it in my 20s, uh, I'm almost 50. Uh, My body was a little not as old. So this will be fun. But 
being outdoors, I think most of us almost expect to have that connection to wildlife and nature. So I think wherever you can be an advocate, if you're an outdoors person for wildlife and for keeping the natural world, that's important. But to follow me in my work, actually, Facebook is a great, I post photos, uh, you know, I'm known for mountain lions, but obviously I have these projects across the state and yes, you'll see fox and porpoise photos. See, I, I made my- She's also known for yeah. pika poop. Yes, pika, another one of my favorites. And then my backyard frogs. I love frogs. So Facebook, Beth Pratt one, you know, that's where I post a lot of photos. I purposely don't keep so much a blog anymore just because it's just so time consuming and people don't actually want to read so much anymore. (laughs) But I do have a website, BethPratt.com. You can also check out. And then obviously the Save LA Cougars site again, www.SaveLACougars.org. The other place you should follow is P22 on Facebook. I don't want to give it away, but it it is me. (laughs) I tell people that and they're like, really? I'm like, no, it's really not him. We have fun with that page. We post a lot of mountain lion photos and footage of him. So that's uh, P22 Mountain Lion of Hollywood you can follow. And so before we go, is there Mm -hmm. any final thought you'd like to leave everyone with? Think of coexistence in everything you do in life. I think it all comes down to if you do value wildlife, almost every action you take has some implication. So I'm not going to tell you you're a bad guy because you drive a sports car. I drive a sports car. I'm not going to tell you you're a bad guy because you take too long a shower. But on the other hand, just, you know, start thinking about the way you are in the world. And if there are things you can do from even positive things that you're not doing, like planting native milkweed in your backyard, because the monarch populations have declined in some areas 90%. When you're driving on the road, drive slower. One of the problems they're having in Yosemite now with the bears is people are hitting them. It doesn't even need to be big animals. My God, nobody wants to drive with me during the first rains because I go so slow because I don't want to mush the frogs, right? So (laughs) in everything you do, if you can take a moment and think about how it impacts wildlife and people, of course, that's going to be a big help in the world. And there are some simple things you can do that will make a difference for wildlife. Like even if you live in an apartment balcony, planting some milkweed, that will make a world of difference. The other thing I'll end with is try to inspire others. I mean, I think that's really key here is that the environmental movement or whatever you want to call it is not winning right now. I mean, we're having these successes in places, but I'd say what's alarming to me is my life's work and anybody working in this field is being disbanded at a really alarming rate right now. So just be aware of that and do what you can to inspire others to take action because we don't want to lose these areas that are essential to experiencing the great outdoors for either people or for wildlife. All right, Beth, thank you very much for meeting me here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And hopefully everyone is going to run out now and go yes get a stuffed p22 <laughs> i know erica is going to want one of those yes they are. <laughs> and hope to see you p22 day october 27th <laughs> griffith park all right thanks again cool. mm-hmm. thank you So just a quick reminder to all of you in the Los Angeles area that P22 Day is October 27th in Griffith Park. So if you are in the area or intend to be in Los Angeles, October 27th is a good time to head to Griffith Park. And now would be a great time to head to our brand new, newly revamped website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 69 with Beth Pratt Bergstrom. And there you will find a number of things, including a multitude of links to things such as an article about the four new cougar kittens that were recently found in the Santa Monica Mountains. They are collectively known as P70 through P73. 
You can read all about those cats there on our website or find links to all of the other things we spoke about in this episode, including ways you can donate to the Save LA Cougars campaign and help build that wildlife overpass. A link to a documentary that features Beth called The Cat That Changed America. Or if you were interested in turning your yard or balcony or some area of your home into a certified wildlife habitat, you'll find a link that will provide that information for you. And you will find a number of photographs, photographs of Beth, but by her insistence, mostly photographs of cougars in the L.A. area and her TED Talk, where she speaks more on the topics that we discussed in this podcast. And if you should wish to get in touch with us here at the show, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com. If you can't remember that, you can always go to that newly revamped website I've mentioned 45 times this episode and click on the email icon at the top of the page or go to the contact page. Or if you would rather dial a telephone, call us up, and leave a message, you can do that, 818-925-0106. And a wonderful way for us all to celebrate the return of the Go Get Outside podcast for its fourth season would be to run to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show, and please share it with someone who you adore. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was edited by Griffin Davis. It was produced and recorded with additional editing by me, your host, Jason Milligan. We would like to give a very special thanks to Rosalind Helfand, who helped make this episode happen. And as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show... Come back October 1st for a roundtable discussion about the community science program at the Natural History Museum of L.A. County. Find out how that museum has began including the general community in their research projects and how you too can get involved. Come back October 1st, Community Science. See you then.